Welcome to Money Stories with LDT. I'm Linda Davis-Taylor, and this is Money and Meaning with Betsy Smith. But when I think back on, on things that have really made a difference, when I've seen young people feeling that they are responsible for their own lives, and that in the early days is about money. Today on Money Stories, we're joined by Betsy Smith, the president and CEO of the Central Park Conservancy. In her leadership for Central Park, one of the world's most iconic and treasured public spaces, Betsy oversees strategic planning, park operations, marketing, and communications. Building on the Conservancy's successful completion of a 40-year restoration plan, Betsy's focus is on ensuring that the park's inspiring mission is achieved through financial sustainability, operational excellence, and engaged governance. During today's episode, we'll hear Betsy's own stories about leadership and the importance of financial competence and confidence. She'll share more with us about the power of philanthropy and how we can tap into our spirit of generosity for positive impact. Welcome to Money Stories today, and I'm so thrilled to have Betsy Smith. Betsy is the president and CEO of Central Park Conservancy. I know she has so much to tell us about her amazing role and a little bit about some other things that she's done. And Betsy, thanks a million for joining us today. Well, thank you, Linda, for, for inviting me. I'm happy to, happy to be on your show. Well, let's, let's start, if we could, by talking a little bit about, about your current role. I bet most people don't really understand how the park works, and maybe they don't even know that there's such a thing as a president and a CEO. So tell us a little bit about that. What's that all about? Well, listen, your listeners would be uh, no farther behind than most New Yorkers, actually, who, in my view, what I found out over the last couple of years that I've had this job, actually very few people do really understand Central Park and how it's run and why it's run the way it is even though it has been by any measure, and this is before my time, a tremendous success. So the two second history on Central Park is that Central Park, which was designed uh, by Frederick Law Olmsted and Calvert Vauxhall in, in the late 1850s, has, has been a tremendous asset to New York City. It's considered one of the greatest American works of art of the 19th century. Uh, it is 843 acres, a very, very complicated landscape, very, very beautiful. It was a social experiment at the time, which is relevant to a comment I, I may make later about the park, in that it was, it was the first purpose-built public park in the country, and it was meant as a place where every class of people could mingle together. That's not what the European parks were. There was no park in America that had that. Hmm. And America, New York was really growing very rapidly in the middle to late 18th, 19th century. And this was a place where Italian immigrants and the Vanderbilts and the Rockefellers could all just sort of min mingle together. So it, it has a social reformation element to it. And it is a very important part of who we think we are today. So fast forward uh, through the various uh, cycles of the park and by the, by the, 1970s, New York City was broke and the city had deserted Central Park, pulled all its people and staffing away from the parks department, which was managing all the other city parks as well. And, and Central Park had left to completely deteriorate. Mm -hmm. 
at the, by the late 70s, there was no benches, no lights, no tree pruning, no lawns, no nothing. It was a major dust bowl and it was literally disappearing. And at that time, interestingly, um, the Central Park Conservancy was formed. Um, it was a vision by a landscape architect whose name was Betsy Barlow uh, and the current parks commissioner at the time. And they got together and decided that they were gonna form what was brand new then, a public-private partnership mm -hmm. for parks. And Betsy had um, an idea that the park could be restored back to its original grandeur. Gordon Davis, the commissioner, knew that the city would never have the money to do it. So gradually, private money started coming into this partnership, which was an independent entity called the Central Park Conservancy. And over the last 40 years, that was 40 years ago, over the last 40 years, over a billion dollars has been invested in the restoration of Central Park. It is uh, one of the most successful public-private partnerships. It's by far the biggest one. It transformed the way New York City's parks were managed because any park that had neighbors who cared about it would form a, a private entity and support their park in that mm -hmm. way. And we actually have a Institute of Urban Parks where we actually talk about how we were started and why and why it's successful to parks around the world. But all that being said, with it's a quite a dramatic history, most New Yorkers don't really understand that the park is, is taken care of privately. They think it's the city's property. It is the city's property, but the parks department doesn't take care of it. It's public property taken care of by a private entity, which is, is not an intuitive situation. Right. But uh, so it's something that we've taken on sort of an awareness campaign to try to change that. And we can talk about why later, but it was, it was a very important part of why I took this job actually. But the park is, has a very, it's a, it's a very important element of New York City. So it's to me worth spending a lot of time trying to figure out to get it right. Absolutely, I mean, everyone I think who's ever stepped foot there knows how beautiful, some of the things you said, how beautiful it is, how amazing it is, what an important, uh, iconic place for the city. Um, and I know that before you took this role, you, you've been interested in, in parks. You're not a landscape, landscape architect, I don't think, right? Oh, if only. No, sadly. <laughs> and I, I think your, your first you know, major part of your career before, before going into government, now this was in finance. So mm -hmm. now you've got this really different role. But if you, looking, looking back earlier, why did you go into finance in, in those years, in the early, early on? Well, I was interested in business. You know, I come from a family of businessmen. My mother's side were on the industrialists. My father's side were financiers. And so I had sort of been steeped in that. And I had, unlike some of my siblings, I had a, I had a deep interest in business. Of course, I had no idea what I was doing when I graduated from college. And I only had then, I don't know how, I think it was instilled in me by someone, probably my father. But I sort of had a feeling that you know, if I put my mind to something, I could probably figure it out. And um, so I got an interview at JP Morgan and they were hiring BAs for their training program. And liberal, liberal arts backgrounds. I had a liberal arts background. I never once took a math class. I never once took an econ class. I, I knew nothing about anything. I knew nothing. I actually was <laughs> interested in business only with a capital B. I didn't really know what that meant, except that I had been around discussions about it. And I thought actually that it would be good to get an MBA, but I didn't really want to do it. Hmm. I didn't want to go back to school. I was a very serious student. Um, 
and I was looking to do something else. So I got uh, a job in the training program, which for our, for your listeners might be interested to knowing that JP Morgan in 1974, when I was admitted into the training program was about 50 people, more than half of which were MBAs. The rest of us were neophyte BAs with liberal arts backgrounds. There was five women uh, in it. Today, the training program is probably close to a thousand people with more than half women. So it's, it's, come, oh, a, it's come a long way. Thank you for days. mentioning that. I was going to ask if you had a recollection as to how many women. So yeah, it was, it was different. That, yeah, in those days, really, it was, I wouldn't say anything as dramatic as we were the point of the sword, but it, it was, there were very, very few women on Wall Street at the time. And uh, I, I do remember my father taking me for lunch uh, at a club that he belonged to downtown. And we had to go up the service elevator because oh, no women were allowed. And this is my father taking me to lunch. Okay. Like I'm thinking, dad, is there something wrong with this picture? <laughs> like, come on. Anyway. Uh, so actually that turned out to be a really good thing. And I have really advised so many young women that a background in finance it, it, it is never not worthwhile in anything that you do. I don't care if you're a painter or a cultural icon or a musician or a business person, understanding how money affects your life and what it is, what money really is. It's a resource. It's not an end in itself. And I got sort of steeped in that early on. And I, I think it's a, a very important knowledge base for almost everyone to have. You know, you don't have to get an MBA, you don't have to be a big economist, but you really have to understand how money works and what it can do and what it can't do. Was there any experience you can recall either in your early days uh, working or, or even uh, before that, that has really stuck with you like a, a money story? I mean, you've had your job, is there anything that you were exposed to, whether it's at home or in those jobs where you thought that was kind of eye-opening? Yeah, there, there, there was actually, Linda, and it's, a, it's, it's too simple, I think, to be interesting to most people. But when I got my job, I was uh, living in uh, an apartment in New York City that my parents owned, and I was given three months to live there before I could find my own apartment. Sure enough, you know, 89 days later, I got a call <laughs> saying, you've got one day to be in this apartment. This was the, this was, that's pretty cool money story okay. from your parents. So they said, it's time for you to, so I by the, knew that that was coming, by the way. So um, I had found an apartment and, you know, I had never paid rent before. I'd never figured that out. Like I had a brand new job and rent in New York City was like sort of half my salary. And I'll never forget uh, someone telling me, and it, it was, it's so true, and I, I, again, have sort of passed this on, nothing is more important for children than to be told they've got to pay the rent. It, it is, it's not like you have to pay for food. Paying the rent is like, you, that's what your life is going to be based on. Where are you going to live, and how are you going to look at yourself independently? You've got to pay the rent. And for all of the subsidies that family gives to their children, in, in my view, much of it is misguided because it doesn't help any young person not to feel they have to pay the rent. So paying the rent to me is sort of like a little bit of an iconic phrase on early financial responsibility. Exactly. Financial responsibility. And it was very clear from your parents 
Yeah, that, that you were going to get it. Yeah, and that and the the, the freebies were over. Like they mm-hmm. they'd given me their place to live for three months. Now it was time for me to sort of figure out how to pay the rent and mm-hmm. and how to take literally half my salary at that time, which I don't even want to tell you what it was. Was so low. It was a real struggle. You know, it was a real struggle. So, um, but you know, what can I say? I was twenty two. Yeah. So now. Uh, and you stayed in finance in different roles and, and found that interesting, I know, and then uh, made your way into government. And now, my goodness, um, from paying the rent to, to running this major enterprise, mm-hmm. I, this is such an obvious question, but, and you, you touched on it a few minutes ago, how does a finance background help you in running this 898 acre park with a zillion employees and beautiful and everything you said mm-hmm. on it. How does that help you? You know, I've thought about that question even before this, this interview. I've never been a chief executive before. This was a, I've had a lot of responsibility in my life over many different, you know, areas, both philanthropically and professionally but I'd never been a CEO before. And one of the things that really appealed to me about it, I think appealed to me because actually I have a strong background uh, in, in finance, and that is the strategic direction of an organization, which is really in my view, what leadership in a cultural institution, certainly, which is all I really can talk to, it's about the allocation of resources. And resources are people, resources are facilities, but resources to a large extent is about the financial resources you have to accomplish whatever strategy you've set out. And my my understanding of that, Linda, I think actually was very important in my being interested in this job because I knew this job was about strategy, which we can talk about in a minute. But I think that my understanding of what, resources are and how you allocate resources and setting priorities about them, so much of it is about money, mm-hmm. really. And so I think that my, you know, it's not that I'm a brilliant financial analyst. It's just that I sort of, I sort of understand that money plays a role and what its role is. And, um, you know, I raise a lot of money every year that we're a not-for-profit. We're very dependent on philanthropy talking to people about money, how you think about other people's money. Mm-hmm. You know, all of this is part of, you know, having a familiarity right. with what, what resource it really is. And um, I, have a, I have a tremendous amount of respect for money in that, as I, as I think of it all the time, it's, it's a facilitator. It's not an end mm-hmm. in itself, but you have to really understand that. So as, as much finance experience as you, as you had in, in business, and then with a lot of other organizations, boards, and so on, you mentioned this is your first time as a CEO. Has there been any moment when, even with all that experience, you wish you knew something else or something different or something more about yes, money? Yes, yes, yes. I, I can tell you definitely. Because, because as I had mentioned before, you know, I had this sort of naive, you know, if you put your mind to it, you know, I can't build an atom bomb, but I, I think I can figure out most, I think most people can. And I tell my daughters this all the time, if you really want, you can figure it out. you like, you can't operate on someone, but you can pretty much figure out anything you really want. So I sort of take everything on. One of the things I found myself very naive about when I took this job, I was quite, you know, okay in the areas of 
business and finance and administration and even fundraising, where I really fell short was in marketing and communications. Like, it's just not my world. Uh, press is not my world. Uh, institutional awareness campaigns. It's just how, how you develop a larger public profile. Like all of these things, which is so important to my job right now, I've been a very steep learning curve. And, uh, you know, my daughter just finished going to business school and she was telling me about all of her classes. And it's not as if business school is the end all and be all, but I would say that my naivete, sort of is the best word for it, on, on areas of marketing and communication probably could have been addressed to a certain extent had I gone to business school. Um, I mean, I've learned a lot. And again, it's not rocket science. I sort of, I, but I've really had to put a lot of time and effort into really understanding how to do it. How, what to think about and how to do it, because it's very important for me. It's very important in this job that that this works. Yeah, so I I read actually something you said in another interview about really you your, what part of your leadership philosophy is that to be a good leader you have to be a good learner. Mm-hmm. So this was a particular area that has given you the chance to really you know practice that philosophy. Well, you know, I think Linda every new job has this. I'm sure you've seen this yourself. You know, when I took on this job, you know, I knew a lot about Central Park because of my experience for working for Mayor Bloomberg uh, in the government overseeing parks, but I had to I had to really learn everything about what it really took to run Central Park. The 350 people we have actually doing all the work of taking care of this public space. You know, I knew a lot about parks sort of writ large, but actually the management of the different layers within the conservancy, the different responsibilities of it, it, it's, it, it, was, a, you know, it, was, it was a lot to learn. You, you have to be open to that and you've got to listen to people who know what they're talking about and, and realize you're sort of in a learning mode. You know, I think you- that's such an important message for, for everybody really, but a, a number of women I've I've known through my life somehow sometimes communicate, well, I'm not going to apply for a certain role. I'm not going to strive for a certain role because I haven't done that before and I don't know how to do it. But what you're saying is learn. Yeah. Don't be afraid. Yeah. Don't be afraid. I have to, I I think I probably have told you this before, Linda, but when I was, I was working in the world of private equity when Mike Bloomberg, who was the mayor of New York, anyway, he was a businessman and he was sweeping private sector people into the government because that was his world, right? And he was a he was a private sector guy with goals and ambitions, milestones, and all this other stuff. And so, I went down to interview with him, and he said, "I think you'd be good in this job." And I said, "Well, Mike, I know nothing about municipal government. I know nothing about parks, and I know nothing about public-private partnerships." And he goes, "You're perfect, Betsy." <laughs> <laughs> but I think what he was saying is the same thing. You know, you've got someone who cares about, about something, someone who wants to get something done and who agrees that there needs to be ways to measure it. And you're halfway there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, which as I say to my daughters all the time, the single most important quality to have, I think as a human being, besides being kind, is curiosity. You just have to really be curious about the way something, how does this work? I think that's a that's a sort of a foundational approach. Agreed. So another side of this, and you touched on it earlier, um, philanthropy. 
So obviously, I think you mentioned uh, philanthropy is important in your role, but I, it, I also would imagine or think that philanthropy has been important in your life. You've been on a lot of other boards and organizations. So um, talk a little bit about why that philanthropy aspect is part of your money life and uh, why you're so committed to doing it, both personally and professionally. I think my family had a lot to do with my early sort of inclinations in this, Linda. You know, my father was was Spartan in his personal tastes and extravagant with philanthropy. Mm -hmm. And my mother was exactly the opposite. (laughs) And uh, I think I've sort of ended up a little bit in between. It is a sense of giving back. But it's actually sort of more than that. I, I feel about what I'm doing, it's very important and I feel very passionate about it and it helps a lot of people and that's very motivating to me. And you know, the park touches 40 million people a year. And during the last year of COVID, when everything was closed, no restaurants were open, all the cultural institutions were closed, New York was deserted. The people who were left in New York were falling over themselves in gratitude for the fact that we kept Central Park looking the way it did mm-hmm. and say as safe and clean and beautiful. And, you know, I just, it was at a financial cost that we did that, but that, that it sort of was the perfect moment for me to really understand what philanthropy is all about. I mean, the city had walked away. They've already walked away from us again. And here we are taking care of something that is so important to people. So I think there is a passion part of philanthropy that you really care about. I mean, you and I shared a board in a, a college and you know, our, my, I'm completely dedicated to concept of liberal arts education. Um, that has followed me through other boards that I've been on and I care about that. And I think people should, should be encouraged to think about what they really care about. And I actually care a lot about open space in New York. I care about health. I care about the environment and parks seem to pull all that together for me. Uh, And, you know, I I care about the strategy I've devised for the conservancy and the era that it's in right now. But it, it was funny, it all sort of came home over the last year when I saw what that really meant to so many people. I mean, it's, it's hard for that not to be motivating, really. Right. So if, I'm sure you, um, you speak with many people from all walks of life about whatever level of, of philanthropy they're, they're capable of or interested in. When you're with someone, maybe particularly women, have you ever uh, had a conversation which you really were trying to uh, encourage someone and you knew they could step up to a, to a higher level mm-hmm. and they just hadn't done that before. Mm-hmm. Is there, is, and I think it's so, can be so powerful when, when there's a breakthrough and someone 
really then has that ability to have that impact. Do you have any experience with that and about why, why maybe a listener should really, if they, at whatever level they can, go ahead and get involved because that's when you're going to have your impact, as you just said. Well, I think, I think you do. You know, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of social aspects of philanthropy that people sort of use and exploit, in my view. It's, it's, it, it, the money goes to a good end, but the, but the motivation behind it, there tends to be more of a social element to it. I think if you can actually tap into what people really care about, and I think philanthropy is sort of a puzzle in that way, because you, it, the burden, I consider the burden, it's on me really to figure out what it is that that person cares about that we are doing that they may want to get involved in. And so it is, it is, um, it is trying to find something that they really care about beyond just the social, the parties, the other stuff, what they really care about. You know, uh, the, the Conservancy has, and has had actually since its early days, something called the Women's Committee. And the Women's Committee of the Central Park Conservancy is a very powerful group of women. Uh, powerful, not in their social position, but powerful in their impact on the park, in their complete dedication to having events and involving, starting with, you know, playground partners all the way up to, to different capital projects. It was a group of women in the early 1980s who realized that there was a lot of women in New York who could be very, very helpful mm -hmm. in supporting Central Park. The park was massively used. Everyone, it was a touchdown to a lot of people. Um, Meanwhile, the conservancy was completely dedicated to actually restoring the park landscape by landscape. And these women got together and they said, you know, the business of the conservancy right now is in restoration. But what we really need is we need the public involved. And they got this group of women and that it has been a tremendously successful women's organization uh, and makes a tremendous um, contribution to the conservancy every year. So then that, that, of course, is visible. And so many other women can imagine themselves becoming involved that way. So you, you mentioned that the past year, I would imagine that even for you, a financial executive, someone who understands how organizations work the past year, I would imagine there was more than one day when you felt a little stress. Yeah. And did you ever feel financial worries? I don't necessarily mean personally, oh, yes. but how are we going to do this? How are we yes. going to do this? Yes. I mean, the other side of the coin on really committing yourself to doing good things for a lot of people is that you can also you can also let down a lot of people. And you know, I had to make a decision, many people had to make decisions over the last year. And I referred to it earlier. We had to decide if we were going to shrink our staff because what happened to us, like with everyone, all of our event support, all the events, we couldn't have events anymore. The city walked away from their contract with us. We're suddenly looking at big losses. We've never operated at a loss. The Central Park Conservancy has never operated. We always had a balanced budget. So here I am, I'm the new CEO. I'm two years into my job and suddenly I'm going to the board and saying, you know, we're gonna lose 10 million bucks over the next two years. Like. I can't tell you how much I didn't want to do that. <laughs> and so I decided I needed to set up a special COVID relief fund, like many other organizations did. I said, you know, we need to get this done. I don't want to raise a zillion dollars. I want to try to cover our losses because I don't want to cut the staff. 
I can't cut back on the standard of care in the park. Too many people depend on it. Mm -hmm. So this was keeping me up many, many nights. And uh, I decided to go out and try to do this thing. And, and we went out and did it. A lot of help from the board. But it is that feeling that the visibility of the park and what would happen if we didn't care for the park, particularly in that it was so appreciated at this time. So it was high anxiety, Linda, it was high anxiety. I mean, I didn't wanna be the CEO that was running a budget that was in the red. Um, I knew I, the board actually was better with it than I was. I, I just didn't wanna be that person. Mm -hmm. um, now I'm not saying it, it's not over yet. And New York is still has a long way to go. And a lot of our donors have left town and like, there's a lot mm -hmm. of things to worry about going forward. Um, but I, I should say that one of the reasons I took this job was because I realized that the Central Park Conservancy was in a different era now, that park had been restored. And now really what we were talking about was sustaining the park. And if you're gonna sustain the park in its current state, you've got to sustain the conservancy. And if you're going to sustain the conservancy, we cannot be completely dependent on annual giving. Like there's got to be a bigger endowment. There's got to be a different kind of earned revenue stream. We've got to create a business model around sustainable financial support. And so that's just become ever more important in the last year. I mean, nothing has made it more dramatic. Right. And so what, what I'm hearing that I think listeners would want to think about is, whether you're the CEO, whether the organization is really well established and well known, which of course Central Park is, you always have to be ready to face financial stress. Yeah, and and, and do I, something about it. You you have you you just have to realize, and you know, even in my personal life, I live a very conservative personal life from a financial point of view. But you know, I've got a couple places, houses to take care of. I've got children that I'm, you know, helping and I'm invested in the stock market. And if the stock market has a major, you know, correction, that's going to affect my ability to, to take care of the way I've gotten used to living. You know, it's in my mind. We all live with risk. And I think that some people have a, a greater tolerance for risk. I have a very low tolerance of risk, which makes me probably more nervous than most mm -hmm. people. But, um, you know, I've, I've taught my daughters to be very, very conservative financially. I mean, I remember the first thing I told them when I gave them a credit card was it has to get paid off every single month. You just cannot give a credit card company 30% interest or whatever it is. Like, whatever. No, if you're going to do this, and I'm going to be watching anyway, by the way, because mm -hmm. it's linked to my account. So I'm going to tell whether or not you're actually paying that off. Because otherwise, just like that kind of thing. Well, a lot of people think that that's a little bit too draconian. But um, my girls, to, to this day, they're very conservative financially. And uh, they have a bit of money saved up, and I've given them some money, which is invested. And they, they have ended up being very conservative. And I'm, very, I'm actually very proud of that. Well, it's a um, great lessons. You got some of those lessons, pay the rent. Yeah, pay the rent. I and made them do the same thing, by the way. I got to take it out on them. Yeah, pass, <laughs> passing it on. But also that this this whole financial part of your life, you happen to have a such a key role where you think about this so much with respect to your job, but you were mentioning personally, it's always your mind in your mindset. Oh yeah. Just like your the rest of your your life, your your health and your 
you know, intellectual life, it's the financial mindset. And I think for so many women, and I appreciate you helping getting that message out because it's, it's really so, so important. I know we agree on that. One more question. Um, So I think a lot of our listeners may not feel as confident. They may not have had some of the same business experience that you've had or the examples. And do you just have any advice about if they've heard you and said, okay, I've got to really tackle this topic and make progress on it however, however I can, what can they do at what, any age, any, any step to really embrace this notion of learning about money, financial responsibility, keeping, keeping healthy outlook on it? A lot of my advice would go to, to parents about their children, quite frankly. I've seen too many situations where parents mistake generosity for a sound way to support their children when actually it, it undermines it more than it, than it helps it. But when I think back on, on things that have really made a difference when I've seen young people feeling that they are responsible for their own lives. And that in the early days is about money. Of course, it's about picking your friends and picking your spouse or picking your significant other or whatever. But a lot of it is seeing money, not sort of as an end in itself, but as I say, sort of as a facilitator for the life you want to live. And as early as you can take that message. I mean, it even starts earlier than that. It starts with earning an allowance and having that allowance tied to something that you're doing so that there is a sense that money has a value. So if you're, you know, my job is emptying the wastebaskets. Mm-hmm. If I emptied all the wastebaskets, then I'd get my quarter every week or whatever it is. And I, I do think that when I think about financial responsibility, I think about how important it is for it to start early. Because I think it's very, very hard. You know, you and I have met many women who've married very successful men who pass away and they're left with this complete lack of understanding on how to manage their lives. Now, fortunately, that's becoming a little bit of a uh, dated situation because people do feel more responsible and women are more financially adept. But I would say that the, as early as you can start teaching financial responsibility, the better. Terrific. I hope you're right that it's dated. Although um, I saw a study this year that something like 45% of married women, millennials, still defer to their spouses on all things financial. Yeah. So it's women have said, oh, I, you know, I, I knew I'd have a career and a job, but I never really saw myself as a breadwinner. Yeah. And so I I mean, I just, I think I have, I have, I have such an issue with that, Linda. I really do. I, I think in any relationship, you, you, need, you, need, to be, you need to be financially savvy. You, you, just, you, don't, you don't have to control everything, but you need to really understand the financial levers in, in every aspect of your life. Um, and it's no good to rely on someone else to pull them. You, you should really understand this yourself. And you know, it, it doesn't require a lot. It requires a willingness to understand the role of money in your life. 
again, it's your word, responsibility. It's yeah. part of your responsibility. Well, I think that's the perfect closing, Betsy. And uh, I know that our listeners are going to want to lo- going to want to go and learn more about the park. Maybe a little bit more about <laughs> well, you. Well, come visit. We, we, they we have, uh, we've got, it's it's at, anyone who's not in New York uh, should come and visit the park. It's it's really magnificent. It's it really is the it makes my heart sing. Really, it's a it's a beautiful spot. It's well worth all these anxious nights. <laughs> Hopefully, hopefully just as many non-anxious nights, Betsy. And thank you so much for sharing your life and your story and your inspiring work. We can't wait to get back into the park and um, look forward to seeing you there. Well, you're, you're nice to ask me and I, I hope this has been helpful and, and interesting. Terrific. Talk thank to you soon. Want more money stories? Check out my Instagram at lindadavistaylor underscore LDT to learn more about our incredible lineup of guests and share your own money story. Until next time, 